Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello, uh, whatever time it is you might be listening to this on the Temple Beth Am podcast, uh, we're here to study some Torah. We're a week removed from last week when we uh, were in the you know, the, really the immediate aftermath of a catastrophe that hasn't gotten smaller or any, any better. Um, at some point, it'll be the case that our programs at class at the Temple Bethan will happen sort of as usual. We will gather to pray and to study, and we won't be doing regular um, check-ins. I don't know that we're there yet because there's so much on people's hearts and minds. I wanted to give three minutes uh, as we gather to study the tradition if there's something that people want to air or process, uh, as we are now 11 days from uh, something which doesn't even have a name yet, right? Well, one day it will, um, right? One, one, I don't know when the Yom Kippur War got named the Yom Kippur War. I don't know when the Six-Day War got named the Six-Day War, but at some point this event in the history of the Jewish people will have a name. It doesn't have one yet, but you all know what I'm referring to. Uh, I'll leave a little bit of space in case people want to share or vent or talk. Yes. Uh, let's take the microphones off the thing. It's just much easier to pass that way. Yeah. Um, just two updates first that, that uh, President Biden was seeking to give uh, the greatest aid to Israel possible, the largest in, in history, as well as providing for $100 million for essentially uh, Palestinians to uh, to do that. And my understanding is um, that uh, the, the that is, I, I just hope that both of those things pass. And there's also uh, statements by the United States that the attack on the hospital in Gaza was not by Israel. And I think that's, that's very important because that's being used to smear Israel's name. And I, I've been in, in one of the things that just really struck me was I was in contact with uh, my family in Israel. I've got cousins there. And but I spoke to one, one of my cousins who is here. And she said that, you know, it doesn't matter what these other people think and something that's going to go on. It's going to be Israel is going to do what it's going to do. And even if you were on the battlefield and then you got an order, you'd have to follow the order of what's taking place. And it just struck me and it was a real revelation for me. I hadn't thought about it in that way from the Israeli uh, perspective in that way that you know, they don't really have a choice of what's going on. It's kind of like we don't have a choice of what's going on if there's redistricting problems in, in uh, gerrymandering in Alabama or something that we have no direct control over that. We have no direct control over what's going on. And we can show solidarity and support and express our feelings of support for Israel, which is very important. But in the end, we don't have any direct control. And that's very disheartening on one level, but it's very heartening on the other to be able to be there and to say Hatikva every day at services hmm. and to pray for the welfare of the hostages and Israeli soldiers. And it's just, it's making me rethink and reevaluate everything that's going on. And I'm just 
I'm just hoping and praying that everything goes well. Thank you, Alan. Uh, Joanna? I just wanted to share that I um, I saw that the Betham community um, promoted the fast day last week that um, Hadar and a number of others um, shared about in terms of one way of demonstrating our support for Israel and the direness of the situation. I chose to participate in the fast and being situated on the East Coast. I wanted to participate in davening that day that was reflective of a fast day. Um, due to my teaching job, I could not participate in Shachari. And I could not confirm a local synagogue that would be doing a fast day mincha. So I said, you know what? I'm close enough now in New Jersey to Hadar, New York. I will get to their mincha. It was one of the most powerful davening experiences of my life. First of all, walking into the room and realizing how many felt like I did, 300 people for a weekday mincha. And then when Rabbi Tucker led davening and he broke several times during the repetition of the Amida, like either visibly crying or even just he couldn't continue. He just paused. And the davening that. Oh, and the first thing I should mention is after Kedusha, nearly everyone remained standing. Um, And I think most of the time, most people would sit. And the first thought I had in my mind is that this is like Ne'ila. This is such a last desperate plea that we have at Ne'ila when we also choose to remain standing. It was not announced or asked of people to remain standing. And then when Rabbi, those moments when Rabbi Tucker couldn't continue and we stood there silently, it reminded me of a poem I read years ago about how music is as much about the rest between the notes as it is about the notes themselves. Hmm. The Kavanah in that silence was one of the most powerful things I've ever felt. And then at the end, when we did Avinu Malkinu, Rabbi Tucker announced we wouldn't be doing in call repeat the traditional verses, but selected verses that he had chosen that he felt were reflective of this moment. And that call and response of these lines that hit like they never had before, culminating with the final singing of Avinu Malkinu, it was the entire experience was one of the most powerful davening moments of my entire life. Hmm. Thank you for that, Joanna. Yeah. I mean, 300 people for a daily afternoon minion. We never get more than 200 at Betham. Yeah. I I was talking to Tom Fieldsmeyer at minion this morning uh, and we were both saying that every line of liturgy. And I wrote about this at some point in the last 10 days. I don't remember where I, where, to where I wrote it and to whom I shared it with whom I shared it. Every line of liturgy seems to be just penetrating either penetrating with horror or realism or comfort. It's making me think about, you know, the, our, our ancients, right? The ancient Psalm writer 3000 years ago, who, who saw something about how Israel was under siege and, how they responded to where they thought God was and the liturgists of 2000 years ago and how, how so much has changed and how so little has changed and what a treasure it is to have. There are days, even as a traditional rabbi, I feel, I feel imprisoned by a prayer obligation that has me say words that were written thousands of years ago, where it's hard to make the prayers of someone else's articulation, the prayers of your own heart. And there are some days it's a treasure to basically walk through Jewish history 
just by reading the Siddur and feel a kinship to those who experience what they experience and turn that into words. Uh, and it's just been an overwhelm uh, through the liturgy the last uh, 10 or 11 days. Barry? Personally, at nights, 2, 2.30 in the morning, uh, hearing the voices, the screaming, uh, the people, the family, the individuals, the torture that was going on, uh, repeating over and over, I, I can't get rid of it. It's, it's, uh, I, I'm just hearing all that and seeing what I shouldn't be seeing, and it's... It's it, it's so deep. I I'm I'm really in pain. Thank you, Barry. Rosemary, and we'll have maybe one or two more, and then we will study Torah today because that's our purpose. Um, for uh, over twenty years, I'm doing a lot of research on history, and it shows me how much when I discuss with people, they don't know the past, what has happened, um, and. Uh, uh, that's one of the ignorances that helps the new things happening. Um, I Last night, finally, I posted uh, a little of my family on Facebook just to show that this existed and it exists always. Mm. And when, like, um, uh, two years ago, they were doing the same killings in South Armenia in uh, Artsakh or Azerbaijan was doing, nobody cared for it. And nobody wrote. Right now, they are putting 150 refugees out of the country, um, that little section. And nobody is writing about it. It's why Armenian 120,000 people are not as important as Palestinian people. Where are the just people which are fighting in the streets? They don't talk even about that. That's the first thing. And um, the second is in history, Iranian revolution, which happened, the real reason was wanting. It was a movie that burned in uh, Abadan, which is the petroleum place. 450 people went inside the movie, and three people went. They threw a can inside the movie. Before that, they had closed all the exits, and the entire movie burned. And all the people inside, women, children, they were kind of modest family people. It was a little bit, not against the Shah, but it was just a little more open. So the Iranian revolution started from there. It became strong. The next day, people like right now, which they are in the streets, are youth in New York, Washington, nowhere knows about that. And uh, they said that's the government who put. What was the Shah's interest to put a, um, to burn people, 400 people in a movie? Yeah. What was he going to gain? Nobody asked that. That has been repeated everywhere. Nazis has done, uh, Iranian has done, Americans have done, not very long ago. And they put the blame on other people. And that's something I'm so surprised that everybody is saying, wow, Israel, why should Israel put a uh, bomb in uh, uh, Gaza to kill people in hospital? Where in Sheba, like yesterday, I just heard, it's Hak Christ, Dr. Christ, which is the director. He said, right now they're uh, healing a woman who came there. Her child had a problem from Gaza, and he's living in Israel because they, the child needed marrow, and nobody's marrow matched. So they made the, uh, the wife went back, became pregnant, came back, so her baby will give the marrow to her brother. Yeah. If they are doing this for a Palestinian in Sheba, 
Why should yes. they throw the bomb in uh, in there? Yes. And um, we were discussing two weeks ago. Rosemary, just a little bit more, because I want to get to the class. Just one thing, sorry. It's okay. We were discussing about the class, actually, and we were saying that uh, when the, uh, I was saying, when the frogs were up, when God, I mean, it was killed, there was a lot of um, smell and uh, rotten things outside. And he was telling me that exactly that's what God has planned because um, in uh, Egypt, there was a lot of perfumes that it has been always, I mean, uh, we know Cleopatra or others walked with it. So one plague had so many things inside. It has uh, like frogs, it had uh, the rotten smell that probably bothered a lot uh, the Pharaoh. If God thinks all those little things, I think he will think big things now. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Rosemary. Renee, uh, one more b- very brief comment, and I want us to jump into the text. I just want to say that, Barry, I feel very much like you do. And the only thing that I that's bringing me any solace is trying to do different kinds of programs um, that I can get involved in. And one of the recent ones I wanted to share with you is something called Chala for Chayalim. Um, and when you sign up, you're given 10 names of Chayalim to pray for when you do the Afrashat Chala. And I wanted to share the Chala that I made this week in the insignia of the IDF in their school. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you, Renee. Uh, we say at a Shiva Minyan that one of the reasons why a piece of Torah shared at a Shiva Minyan is one, Le'ilui uh, Neshama, for the ascent of the soul, the idea that Torah study dedicated in someone's name helps um, the settling of the soul of the departed, and that it's a comfort to study Torah, and that um, it's so much of a comfort in study Torah, we're prohibited from doing so on Tisha B'Av. So um, in both of those veins, let's study Torah, both uh, dedicated to the souls of uh, so many, so, so many who have lost their lives, um, and as a comfort for us as we uh, hold on to this ongoing national pain and mourning. Okay. We are on chapter 8. Um, and we are about to read verse seven, 16, chapter 8, verse 16 of the book of Shemot to remind us um, where we were last time. Verse 15 was Vayomru Achart. We spent a lot of time on this, but just to give us some momentum, Vayomru Achartumim El Paro, the soothsayers, the magician said to Pharaoh, Etzba Elohim He, this must be the finger of God, what we're witnessing, Vayachazak with Paro, a hard. Pharaoh's heart remained hard. Beloshemalehem did not listen to them, uh, pay attention. Kasher Dibaranai, as God had, I think a better word here is predicted. Right? And we talked the last time. The last time was talk about again when God had predicted that this would be the pattern. Now we're on uh, verse sixteen. Rashi is quiet until verse seventeen. Um, Norm, you have a question? Yeah. Oh, do you want to read? Yes. Vayomer Adonai Moshe. Uh, and God said to Moses, Hashkem baboker v'hisyatzev lifnei faro, go in the morning uh, and present yourself, uh, place yourself, you know, where Pharaoh will come in, in Pharaoh's face, so to speak. Hine uh, when he goes to the waters, v'amarta uh, elov, and say to him, 
Koamar Adonoi, so says uh, Hashim, Shalachami, uh, let my people go, Ve'avduni, uh, which I love this word, Ve'avduni is so wonderfully ambiguous in English, because it could mean, and let them worship me, or it could mean, and they will serve me, or and they will work for me, or they will become my servants, perhaps as opposed to your servants. Yes, we, 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 we've spoken a lot and we'll continue to speak about the way in which the root Ayin Bet Dalid works its way, uh, pun intended, through this narrative um, and the move from being uh, slaves to a tyrant to being servants of a benevolent God, right? That's really the meta theme of the book of Exodus. Um, while everyone is holding on to that verse, put a pin in it and turn back to chapter 7, uh, verse 15. Just another place where we have God instructing Moshe to meet Pharaoh um, by the water. Rashi spent some time there discussing why that was the exact spot. Rashi does not say anything about it here, but just remind us in chapter 7, verse 15, Lech el Perot, God says to Moshe, go to Pharaoh, Babokir in the morning. In our verse here, we have Hashkem Babokir, which means to get up early in the morning. It's the same verse used to describe what Avram did on the day of the Akedah. Hashkem means to, to do something early and with the urgency. He is uh, coming out to the water. You should place yourself there to meet him. In our verse here, it was I like how Rome did it. Place yourself in, the, in Pharaoh's face because the word is, we translate it as before or in the presence of, but it's from the word panim. So put, uh, go into the face of Pharaoh. Um, or on the edge of the, uh, of the river. So once again, this is um, Pharaoh to, uh, Moses being told by God to go meet Pharaoh by the water, which has been the source of the, um, the initial plagues, will not be the source of the other plagues, but this is where the event is taking place. Uh, Rashi's quiet on our verse. I just wanted you to see a parallel verse back there. Um, Norm raised the question of the via Abduni. Again, not the first time that the rationale for the Exodus is for a different type of avoda or Abdut. Anything else that people want to ask or say in the verse um, before we move forward on it? Any verb, any phraseology or, or content that begs a question? If not, we'll go forward. Is this the first time that the phrase, let my people go, is, is used by Moshe? I, no. Uh, okay. If you go uh, s- several times, in fact, right after the verse we just read, if you look at verse 7, 16, which is so it's literally one chapter ago, same verse. But Marta Eliab, you should say to him, God, who is the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, Lemor, to say, send my people that they may serve me. Uh, Joanna. Um, both here and in the verse quoted in chapter seven, um, I don't think this occurred to me in chapter seven, but if you imagine this scene in, in your mind, right? is to stand like erect, you know, stand tall at attention, erect and picture Paro's position. Like presumably he's bathing in the water, he's crouched down. And I just think that imagery of Moshe standing tall over a crouched down Paro says something in that alignment, um, you know, in terms of the 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 power relationship here that that is interesting at least to me as if god is telling moshe stand stand tall in front of this 
you know, human self, self, uh, avowed demigod. Yeah. Right. Who may appear tall to you and everyone else, but look, I have made him in this crouched down position. He's, you know, he's not as powerful or as fearful as you might think. Yeah. It is interesting to wonder, is there, is there a reason or is it kind of a nothing (laughs) that back in chapter seven, it was Venit Savta. So the form is, more plain, and here it's vehitiatse, which is more reflexive. I don't know what like it's it, to be presented versus to present yourself. Are those just two ways of saying the same thing, right? The Torah is allowed to have synonyms even across tenses and forms. Um, or if there's some way we're supposed to understand the vehitiatse in the imperative, you, you you're going to do something to yourself such that you will be more presentable, more of a firm <laughs> presentation in front of Pharaoh. Hard to know. Uh, Uncleus translates it. Um, not particularly interestingly uh, in that regard. Uh, Rick. Uh, hi. Um, I wanted to bring up uh, the Yativ on Co. That wasn't there the first time. Um, Remind back- everyone what a Yativ is because not everyone gets why that would be interesting. Um, so in this sentence in verse 16, after um, uh, God says, Ve'amarta elav, that's with the Revia on top. That's the same in the other verse. So it's like setting up, and this is what you should say. Um, here, it's ko. It's a dramatic wake up. Amaranai. Uh, it's different. And um, ever since A. Berman did ko's uh, all over that one half Torah, uh, Larry and I have uh, been very aware of, of the word ko and how it grabs uh, attention. Uh, In the previous uh, verse, um, not exactly 15, but 16, is Ve'amartai Lav. It starts, and there it's a different kind of uh, announcement. There it's an Adonai, Elohei Ha'ivrim. And then there it's Ve'avduni Bamidbar, and here it's just Ve'avduni. So it's kind of more dramatic and... um, quicker to the point it's it's abbreviated yeah um so it's just some observations on the trope there yeah the word co which is translated into an english word that's a throwaway word like thus right uh is often gets a a sort of a one syllable dramatic note called the ati sometimes it can be well one syllable but you can do it in one syllable that turns it from just a filler word to a trumpet blaring and, and some people and some people's versions of the yativ are more dramatic than others, right? I remember discussing with my tutor since y- yativ, um, um, Myrna Zaret, Myrna Zaret. Yes. So if you have enough syllables, it's a three-note, three-note note. So yeah, three letters, so three syllables. Right. So it's yativ, dum dum dum. Yeah. Have only one syllable. Do you do ko or ko or just ko? Right. Um, whatever. However, you truncate it. It you have to um, hold on to the sense that this is an announcement of something significant musically. Yeah. Can I add something else? Um, I was teaching the fifth grade. Ela todot noach, and then Ela todot shem. It's the same uh, yativ. It just it, it grabs the reader's attention, the listener, right? These are illiterate people listening to somebody read it. Um, no offense to our people, but um, 
it's it's the drama of listening to the music way up high. Yeah. Steve, uh, Steve, what did you say about letters? As I recall, the rule is the Atif can only appear on a word with three or fewer letters. Really? I believe that's correct. Yeah. Rick? Uh, I've never <laughs> paid attention to it, but now um, I'm sure that I will. But yes, the word Yativ could not have a Yativ. <laughs> <laughs> Except on the music That's page. The onomatopoeia is not an onomatopoeia. Okay, um, Tova? <laughs> For the record, the code that I learned is actually different from anyone else's that I've heard because it's not melodic at all. It's just an exclamatory. It's just co. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I may have missed a discussion related to this, and it's coming back to Joanne's visualization of Pharaoh crouching as he bathes in the Nile. But the image I get from this passage in the previous one is not him bathing because they wouldn't have gone down to bathe in the Nile. It's rather him enacting a ritual role with regard to the, uh, the, um, the power of the Nile itself. And so it's, it's a different confrontation. It's not so much him in a vulnerable position as a human being, but confronting him in his role as a divine arbiter mm. and challenging that, mm. which I think is. Mm. Stevie, yeah. Just Ibn Ezra says something almost close to that. Um, without any knowledge of Egyptian culture, he says, that it's the custom of kings to go down to the to the river in the morning because seeing the water is good for their eyes. Mm. But so, but he somehow simply with the use of the text understands this to be just a customary practice that they have, and so maybe he's you know the the text is sensitive to the Egyptian reality. Yeah, because, um, I'll just put that on the screen quickly for you to, everyone to look at. This is what uh, Stevie was reading before. Oh, once again, can someone just go to the computer, just move the thing on the right over? It's their custom. That's exactly as Stevie said, to go to the water because it's good for their eyes. Yeah. So um, you're, saying, you're saying, Stevie, that Ibn Ezra's agreeing this is not just a standard bathing, but some kind of regal ritual? Yeah. Yeah. Royal Shahri. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, Marshall. Uh, again, I, I select Robert Alter as my primary source for translation. Mm -hmm. And he says, and the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and station yourself before Pharaoh. Station. <laughs> Not just place yourself, but station yourself before yeah. Pharaoh. And then for the word ko, he says, look, he will be going out to the water and say to him, Thus said the Lord, send off my people, much more strong than let my people go. Well, the, the look is a translation of the hine, not of the ko. The ko is the... Um, what was that uh, so? Yeah, look, look is his translation of the hine. Instead of a behold, he's doing his look, but he's translating the ko differently. How did, oh, how, yeah, that's, you're, you're right. Okay, right. Um, yeah, I, I guess I misspoke there. So... So how does he do the co? Uh, for if you do not send off my people, I am about to send against you and against your servants. No, no, no that's the next verse. Oh, the next verse. Go, go to the previous verse. The end of the and say to him. Thus. Oh, thus said thus said thus thus, yes. thus right yeah. Send off my people. Shalachet on me. Yeah. 
the Abduni, that they may worship me. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we do another verse? Go to 17? Okay. Norm, you're up still because you get uh, more normal microphone. It doesn't say shalach et ami, it says shalach ami. Where's the direct object? Where's the, the where's the et create the, the direct object? The, the yeah. preposition sort of. Yeah, but you're right, particularly because we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, got, it got moved to verse 17. Shlach ami. That's interesting. Yeah, That's I, also a trope thing, Rabbi. In, in the first sentence in, um, in chapter 7, it's shalach et ami. So the, the verb shalach gets a little oomph there with the pashta, and then v'yavduni bamibar, and then here it's shalach, because the drama got, got into the ko, uh, the shalach, ami is just merchat, v'yavduni, it's, it's, it's just a different, different structure. Yeah, but that, that's arguing backwards, because had the ed been there, the trap would have made a space for it, right? So the question is, why is the ed missing? I don't know. There's, there's no obvious grammatical reason, right? There's, it's def, shalach is definitely a transitive verb. Ami is definitely the direct object. It's definitely um, 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 a, what do you call it? A, um, a proper direct object, and it should, it should get the et. I don't know mm-hmm. why it's not there. I had not noticed that. Shalach Ami. Yeah, don't know. Good question. Um, okay, Norm. Kiyim Eincha Meshalech Es Ami. But uh, if you will deny and not send out my people, Kinni Mashliach Becha Uvavadecha Uviamcha. Uh, um, then uh, we will do to you, or we'll send to you, um, and your uh, and your servants and your people, and in you know the homes, the houses, the buildings, as uh, Arov. Um, the Orov, which here is translated as insects. I think this is the one that I grew up thinking was locusts. Uh, Umolu uh, Bate Mitzrayim as Orov, the Gamha Adama Asher Haim Aleha, and the houses of Egypt shall be full of it, full of them, and also the ground uh, where they are. Good. The land. Good. Okay, so a lot going on in this verse. First, notice the um, double use of the root shalach in the first few words. If you are not willing to send off dispatch my people, then I'm going to do my own dispatching, right? It's a little bit of midah connected midah. Um, circle in your mind the prepositional, uh, the preposition becha, because that's what Rashi is going to focus on. Um, why? What is the relationship between the sending here and the b, which means upon or to, which is not a direct object? It's not what it's not going to send something, but send something upon. It's going to be upon your servants, on you, and upon your servants, upon your houses and your um, and your people. And then the question that no one has ever been able to, nor will be able to answer conclusively: What is arov? Right? Um, you ask your standard fourteen-year-old Jewish kid who studied some, you know, the tradition. You'll get two primary answers because there are two primary answers in the tradition. One of them is 
Well, wild beasts. One of the herd of wild animals, right? Uh, Isn't it wild beasts in Nagada? In, insects, right? As swarms of insects or no, wild wild beasts in the Agada, isn't it? Wild be referred to as it's, wild beasts. It's whatever people are guessing it is, we don't know. But those, but, the, but those, the, those are the two. What's that? Yeah, our bet is locusts. Um, uh, Arov is again either swarms of insects, but insects that must be different than kinim, otherwise it wouldn't be its own plague, yeah. or some kind of a animals, animals that are that are uh, devouring, right? Mixed animals, right? And um, Stevie said mixed because of what the word arov uh, means etymologically, and that's what Rashi is going to go on. Ayin rejbet means to mix up, right? Arave means to mix. Um, the Rashi refers to the the darkness and the light that existed before God separated them, something that the human mind cannot comprehend. We cannot comprehend what it was before God separated the light from the dark. It's not just, it's not just dusk. He calls it an erbuvia, a weirdo mixture of things that are all, uh, that should be separated, but are all together. Um, I used to think that the reason why our evening service is, is called Mari and why that time of day is called Erev is for the same reason, because it seems to be a mixture of light and dark. Uh, Tsioni Zevit is a professor of, of Bible at, at Ziegler, thinks that's not correct. No one knows for sure. He thinks it relates to an Akkadian word um, that, that the root means uh, like a descent, like into a sheath, uh, because it was when the sun was descending into what they thought was the pocket in which the sun would be overnight. Um, I'm not, he, he thinks it's that, he doesn't know for sure. To me, it, it, it makes more sense that it's this admixture, but then if it's that admixture, then it would be also the word for dawn, which it isn't. So maybe he's correct. Um, but the reason I thought that is because that's what the root means. Uh, eruv, right? What is an eruv? An eruv, there's several different types of eruvs, but it's a, it's a thing that delineates that everything inside of it is all mu'rav, is all mixed together, right? So we're now not 17 homes, we're one home, and we're sharing one halachic reality, right? So... Uh, that's what the root means. What does it mean here? No one really knows. Okay, uh, Sue. Well, I mean, I never thought about it because I was always busy cartoonizing the wild beasts. Right. You know, more, right? Uh, like where the wild things are. Image, right, right. Exactly. But it couldn't. You know. I mean, it wasn't. A, when you think about it, the thought that it was a herd of wild beasts. That the way I've always pictured it, and never thought for one moment about anything else. It it kind of can't be that. Um, and, Are you um, questioning God's omnipotence? <laughs> but then you said devouring. It was like a herd of mixed a mixture of things that are devouring. So all of a sudden, I've got in my mind, you know, like some yucky rodent type, mm. you know, gobbling mix of species of who knows what that's crawling around. Yeah. So now I've got the rats in my head. Yeah. So uh, Rachel, Norm, and then Marshall, and then Rosemary. What's interesting, before we keep going into it, it, it's interesting that it's imprecise, right? The other plagues, assuming we know what Hebrew means, are precise, unless there is actually a meaning to the word Arov that's just been lost. It might be that it once was precise, but it seems to be a word that means a yucky mixture. And it's up to us to figure out what that yucky mixture is. And I am... unless I'm mistaken, it's the only plague that could possibly be referring to something vague as opposed to something specific. Rachel. When we talked about um, first the blood, then the frogs, then the 
Keening be the Lyser Nats, yeah. um, we could kind of find a causal connection between one plague and the next. Okay. And I'm looking for that here. This seems to just, if it's referring to swarms of insects, it's following another swarm of insects. And if it refers to wild beasts, then it's absolutely unconnected to the previous plague. Yeah, so on either on this verse, Rashi, yeah, Rashi's comment on this verse is going to try to talk about some of the patterns between all of them, including how this one fits in. Norm. Um, I just don't like it being called a herd of beasts because herd implies something organized, even if it's self-organized by the animals. And Rashi is going to say that this is a, a mixture. And he says there's wild beasts, there's scorpions, there's snakes. It's uh, just a whole lot of bad things happening to the animals. And it may be that it's wild animals from the wilderness are going to come in um, invade the settled part of Egypt. Uh, just a question. Could it possibly be implying you've had these individual miseries come upon you. Now they're all going to come upon you together. Mm. That is, could it be you're going to have frogs, you're going to have mm. it all, but all together, all mixed together instead of singly. Mm. That it's not a new thing, but it's it's an overwhelm of what had been. It's like right. a interesting. Okay, Stevie? We'll just go down. Just to uh, add to that, that the Kinim never left, right? So it could sort of be that you've got, you know, you've got a certain insect right now, and um, then the rest of the insects are, are coming. Interesting. Okay. So that, that might lead us in the, in the insect direction as opposed to the uh, where the wild things are direction. Marshall, we'll just go around. Marshall is Mary, then Leonard. Again, on altar, first on the word shalach and shalach, it seems to suggesting here is a midah, connected midah. If you don't send it forth, then I'm going to send, number one. And secondly, in terms of the word arov, altar has an interesting understanding of it. He says the Hebrew term arov only occurs here. And the only plausible derivation is from the verbal root, what it means to mix, which we just spoke about. Some medieval Hebrew commentators imagined this as a mingling of sundry beasts of prey. But this seems unlikely because, as verse 27 makes clear, the Arov has infested the Egyptians rather than torn them limb from limb. And that one remained probably suggests minuscule constituents of the horde. Hmm. A plague of maddeningly noxious insects. This reflects what Rachel was saying also makes a much better pair with the preceding plague. The King James Version swarm of flies is as good a guess as any, though it seems wise to avoid the word swarm in order not to introduce a misleading echo of the verb by Yidro Tetsu, hmm. which we have in Exodus chapter 1 hmm. and in chapter 7. Hmm. Great. Rosemary? In the French book, I read that um, it was saying scorpions and uh, snakes, and that's so normal because uh, the geographical place of um, Egypt will admire to have them when they're nearby. Yeah, so we'll see that in Rashi when we get there. Leonard? <clears throat> All right, so I did a little research while I was waiting here. Did you find the missing it? I did find the missing it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mariv actually is uh, the name for the service, 
is actually a medieval Hebrew word, and it's named after the word Mari, which appears in the first benediction, where it means the setting of the sun. Wait, say that again? Hamari varavim? Exactly. You're meaning the, calling the service that is that, right? It the service was called that because it was called Mari right. because of that first benediction. Right. In the, in the Mishnah, the, ref, the reference to that service is Arvit. So it's the same root, but a different, different, different noun. Okay. And then in terms of the um, Arov, uh, it's interesting that there's a uh, Syriac word. Uh, Aruva, which sounds like an island in the Caribbean, but, uh, which actually means a swarm of vermin or insects. Mm. So if we're going to go by cognates, uh, it sounds like the insects win. Yeah. Okay. Any others, Sue? I vote for vermin. <laughs> I want to show you the root ayin reish bet in Hebrew is one of the most... Um, what's the word, pluripotent roots in uh, ancient uh, biblical Hebrew and rabbinic Hebrew. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. I want to show how many pages there are in, in uh, Jastro of Ayin uh, Reish Bet. So there's the first one, um, and he compares it actually to Aleph Reish Bet, which is interesting is Aleph Reish Bet is also how the word locust is spelled, Aleph, Aleph Reish Bet Hey, um, to mix or to confuse. Um, and he, uh, that's the first one. There's also to put in place of to vouch for. An eravon is like a, um, a collateral or um, something that you leave with someone uh, or that you take from someone so that you can come back and, col and collect like in the story of Judah and, Tam and, Judah and Tamar, right? Right. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but this, that, that first page, this whole page, Ayin Reish Bet, Ayin Reish Bet, right? The next whole page, Ayin Reish Bet, Ayin Reish Bet, right? And then Aramaic versions of it, Ayin Reish, Reish Bet Aleph. Then the forms of the root where the bet is doubled, Irbev, like Irbuvia, sometimes this last letter in a root is doubled to intensify it. Arbev also means, I think, to stir, right, in modern Hebrew, right? Uh, and then another page, Ayin Reish Bet, Ayin Reish Bet Bet, Ayin Reish Bet Hey. It's Jastro spent a lot of time breaking down this word, um, which is interesting and a, uh, a reminder that whatever we think the word Ha'arov means, we have to be okay not being able to fully know. Okay. I want to let's jump to the Rashi because the Rashi is kind of interesting here. Look, I mean, it's interesting everywhere, but that's um, at least start to break it down a bit. It's in the second Rashi that's going to get to the Ha'arov. Let's see how, see if we can get there, but we're not going to rush. Uh, back to Norm, First thing he deals with is why it's Becha and not another preposition. Mashliach Becha. Menorah? Megareh. Megareh Okay, so the first thing he does is don't translate, reader, Mashliach the way you normally would, which would mean to send, right? To send away, right? And by the way, um, normally, and this gets very nitty gritty in grammar, to send away is in the pa'al sholeach or the pl mishaleach. This is the hif'il, to cause something to be sent, right? And it's different than lahashlich with a chaf, which is to cast away. Sounds the same, but it's a different word. So this is actually rare for the root shin lamed chet to be in the hif'il. And Rashi is saying that particularly when you have the b afterwards, the preposition upon, it doesn't mean to send, but migarebacha. Did anyone know what the word megarebacha might mean in Hebrew? It could mean to threaten. Here it means to kind of agitate. 
to agitate amongst you, right? Um, to, to really to send something upon you that has been, or it's like what, what you would do if you smacked a beehive, you'd be Migareb, you'd be Migarebahem. You would be um, uh, waking them inciting. up. Inciting? Inciting, right? Inciting is going to be helpful in a second. We get to the French perhaps. Okay, keep going. Vichain. <laughs> Okay, so uh, Rashi sends us to a verse from uh, the very end of the Torah that we read um, a couple of weeks ago. So look at the screen. Um, uh, okay, so this is in the um, Parshat Hazinu, very, very hard um, uh, Hebrew. And this is a part of the Parsha where God, through Moshe, is reminding the Israelites of what's going to happen to them if they don't follow the Torah. Um, some, some kind of like an overwhelming um, hunger, uh, food is going to go only the vultures, um, a deadly assault of a plague. I will blank the teeth of beasts, right? It's not just that I'm going to send them to you, I'm going to set them upon you, right? And it's translated here as I will send. I will send against them. Let's look at a different translation. Let's see how, um, however, Fox translates that one. Um, teeth of beasts. I will send out against them. So there's this this sense of like uh, stirring something up for it to be against you. Okay. So that's the first um, route that Rashi sends us to. Um, even though in Parshat Hazinu. Uh, it's not he feel mashlich, but it's um, pl ashalach. Actually, it could be pl or pal. I'm not sure. Okay, keep going, Norm Lashon. I was going to say this could be politically translated as "I will sick them on you." I will sick them on you. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. Uh, Bum Lashon Shamui Shisui Shisui. Okay, now. When, when Rashi um, tells us, ah, I'm going to give you an easier word so you understand what it means, that's only helpful to us if we know what that word means, right? So let's look at Jashua and Shisui. It's on the, on the, um, uh, on the screen. Shisui is the gerund of the PL form. So it's from uh, Lishasot, I suppose. So if you look at Jastro on the first entry here where the cursor is, Shisa, to set on, like to set a dog on someone, right? To what a you know what a, what a, what a what a canine unit canine unit might do with their dog would be lishasototam or ligarothbehem or lehashlichbehem. So it's not just to release, but to incite something to do something violent. To sick. To sick is what uh, Norm said before. Okay, and then uh, Norm, keep reading. Um, uh, no, no, no. You have two, you let miss two words. Oh, I'm sorry. Intiter. Oh, intiter is 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 the old French. Uh, intiter, which in English is to incite. Right. So now look at. Um, uh, so it's interesting how he writes it. He writes it as in in incitater, something like that, which pro- I would think does refer to an old French word that means incite. It's interesting if you look at the Otsar Lashon Rashi on the screen. It's. <laughs> It's transliterated for the Rashi as the C and the T switch around, NTCL. Um, right, so now I have to turn to Rosemary. Is there a French word, NTCL, which looks more like entice than incite? 
that means to stir something up or the, the, the T and the C get mixed up and it's a mistake. Any thoughts, Rosemary? And TCL, is that a word that you know? Is there a using gold signs to mean either entice or to do both? Yeah. To do, so to do both, that's very interesting because those are very different ideas to entice and provoke. Incite and provoke, I would. It is incite. Incite, yeah. Um, okay, so that was an interesting little journey um, on, on the mashlich and the bacha. Okay, now, Norm, uh, let's get to any other questions on that. Oh, we can get to the arov. What's that? Yeah. The laws means in the, in the French. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Rick. Well, just because you brought it up, ein cha is, is nice. It goes with the ein citer. So Rashi's, I mean, it just, it sounds, they're related. Ein cha and ein citer. The Tzadi first. Eh. Nah, I know. <laughs> That's kind of what saying, like, there, there's an uh sound in one of the words. And that reminds me of when my grandfather used to grunt and say, uh, so they must be related. Um, okay, uh, I, I, I know. We, 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 it's sometimes when you get down to that level, um, it gets a little silly. But that, that, then again, this whole enterprise is. So um, let's keep going. Ha'arov. Uh, Move the mic closer to yourself. Okay, so Rashi is going to weigh in quickly on the sort of the wild beasts and creepy crawlies side of the definition. So all types of animals, bad animals, which are snakes, snakes and scorpions, in a yucky mixture, in an erbuvia. Keep going. Bohoyu nashvisim bohem. Viashtam. So translate that. Bohoyu mashchitim bohem. Lahashchit? In a crowd. What does lahashchit mean? To, it really means to destroy, right? To, 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 de- to devastate by means of them to wreak havoc. Right, so they were all these uh, an admixture of yucky things, all of which are scary, through which or by which um, havoc would be wrought upon the Egyptians. Okay, so first that that's Rashi's uh, comment on what arov means, and he disagrees with those who might say it's insects. It's more um, attacking, biting animals, and then. He adds something that goes back to the thing we said about 40 minutes ago about should we be discerning any pattern in these plagues? And he pulls a little bit from a, an extended Midrash on, uh, from t- the Tanchuma, which we, if we were studying Midrash, we could read the entire thing, that tries to patternize all 10 of these. So go ahead, Norm, let's start reading them. Um the whole uh maka umaka lamazu velamazu. Okay, so he's saying we're now introducing the fourth plague. If you've been wondering, are these connected, particularly now since we move away from the water, right? We had we had water or water adjacent plagues. Yesh Tambadavar, there's a reason for this. What he means by this is, even though it doesn't say it explicitly, is the uh, pattern and the uh, laying out of these plagues. 
Be'agada in the Midrash. Again, again, in Midrash, he's always calling from, but now he's telling us explicitly. For each and every plague, Lamazu, Lamazu. Why this one, not this one? And he's going to give us a little bit of a taste of that. Go ahead. Um, Okay. Uh, I did not know the word Taksisi before I studied this Rashi. So, He's giving advice to Netanyahu. <laughs> a little bit. Um, if you look at the screen, this is Jastro on Taksis. It is a, um, um, it's from the root Teches, which means to press or to squeeze, right? But a Taksis is a order, an array, an order of battle, an arrangement. So it's the way in which an army is arrayed to siege. So Rashi says everything that you're going to see in the plagues, even though it's not involving human soldiers, is representing, not allegorically, but actually an impact, the way in which an ancient king would besiege a city. God is coming to Egypt in the way that the milchamot malachim, the wars that kings initiate, would happen in those types of arrangements. And he's going to give us... My Oh, that's interesting. Tactic. Maybe that is it. Yeah. Sue. So, microphone. We're clearly not a bunch of soldiers because tactics. We would have gotten there earlier. Um, is it related to tekes, the word tekes for ceremony? That taxis say? Could be like an organized yeah, arrangement like some of a kind of, It's interesting. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of the word taxis, though, in modern Hebrew? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Could be tekes. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. So we're gonna we're gonna hear a few of them, and then um, I'll quickly, even though Rashi doesn't bring them, I'll quickly walk you through the, what the Tanhuma says for all ten. Go ahead. Shetsara, um, which is besieges. So it's the siege of a city. Kind of city. Um, Betchila. Uh, What's the first thing that you do to make um, to, to put pressure on something you're besieging? You deprive them of their mo- the most important water, right? Because you try your right. That's the it, it's 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 sort of like humane and inhumane at the same time, right? It's inhumane to deprive anyone of water, but it, if you're saying if you don't do this, like I, I now control your water, so surrender. In which case, you'll have all the water, right? And this takes us back to Hezekiah's tunnel. Right. If you read the source, there was a whole right. There was a there's a whole long chapter on the the engineer, the hoopo, who looked at the hoopo bird and the different um, channels that he dug. The first thing you do is destroy the water source because that hopefully will force them out, and then maybe you won't have to kill anyone. Right. Not that they were doing it for noble reasons. So you destroy the water source, and that goes to which plague? Blood. 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 Yeah. Okay. This one I love the most of, of, in the midrash. Uh. And next, uh, once you've established control of their hydration, you announce with trumpet blasts and grand, uh, you know, maybe speakers, we're coming to get you in order to liyaram, to make them afraid, and to confuse them. And what does that line up with? Frogs making noise. The croaking of the frogs, right? It's it's, it's the ribetization of the frogs. Bechein, he says it explicitly. Uh, it's the next word after Ulva Halam. Bechein, Hasfardim, 
So that's how the frogs are makarkarim, you know, uh, gro- um, groaning and riveting um, the homim and making their sound and therefore frightening the people. So that's the first two uh, plagues matched up against ancient warfare. The chule. As as appears in the Midrash of Tanhuma. Very quickly, I'll I'll share you the, the rest of them, um, and then we'll end class. Uh, okay. So after we're, after you've announced, you send arrows into the city. Yoreb bahem chitzim. That's the 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 lice that would kind of enter into the bodies of the Egyptians like arrows. Right after you do that, mevi alehem barbariim. You uh, you send upon them wild like your wildest soldiers that that you can't even control to show that um, that the end is not going to be good for the people inside. That's the erov, right? There's no controlling snakes and um, um, uh, scorpions. Uh, after that, you send um, magifot uh, plagues against their own animals to also uh, decrease their ability to sustain themselves. That's the dever. Um, afterwards, you might throw hot oil, right? The, the, you know, you think of the Masada siege, right? The, you, you lay upon them things that will burn them. That's the shrin, that's the boils. You um, basically throw cannonballs at them. That's the barad, that is the hail coming down. Um, then you, you, you basically set upon them your entire population to overcome them. According to them, that's the Arbe, that's a locus. Once you take, once you successfully in the city, you take them captive and you put them in your dungeon. That's the darkness. And if it comes to that, you ultimately have to start killing them. This is very on the nose for us right now. This is too close. Um, in terms of what the Jewish people are facing and frankly, what the Palestinians are facing in Gaza. Um, but it does take the, what seems to be um, a disorder of the plagues and try to put them into an order. And that is really the calling card of the God of the Old Testament, of the Torah, right? Someone who is, a, is an orderer, is a uh, taking of chaos and putting it into a particular pattern. Uh, so when we meet next week, we'll be on to uh, the next verse. Kolkavod Norm, who is on the entire time. Uh, Can I say something real quick? Yes, please. Microphone. Taxis. Yeah. Is actually a loan word from Greek. Taxis, which means arrangement order. Taxis comes from this, is also from that same word. In so Greek. do we think that comes from tactic then? No, tactic, well, I don't know about the origin of the word tactic, but. You know, the taxis is our array of battle and arrangement. The, the meaning, the later meaning in modern times of stratagem, tactics, whatever, that happened much, that was a much later meaning hmm. for the word. God, language is fascinating. Thank you for that, Leonard. Have a good day, everyone. Have a good week. Be good to one another. Shalom al Yisrael. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.